cryptocurrencies are a fundamental computer science invention. Cryptocurrencies crashed in 2018 from a financial perspective, but the technology remains as promising as ever. Bitcoin is a decentralized currency, and a plausible end state that is implied by Bitcoin's current trajectory is a permissionless, decentralized financial system. This idea of decentralized finance, or DeFi, begs numerous questions. Who will build the companies that provide the infrastructure for decentralized finance? Who will be the lenders? Who will be the credit agencies? Who will be the escrow services? How big will the teams need to be? Will these systems be built on smart contracts, or can it be done with centralized cloud providers? Haseeb Qureshi is a managing partner with Dragonfly Capital and a frequent guest on Software Engineering Daily. In fact, he's the most frequent because he's a good friend and I really enjoy talking to him. He returns to the show to discuss his thesis on what kinds of crypto companies make sense and how he thinks about investments into crypto companies. Haseeb has written a detailed blog post about how to start a crypto startup and I recommend checking that out if you are looking for startup ideas or definitely if you are considering building a crypto startup yourself. If you're building a software project, post it on Find Collabs. Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. It's a place to find collaborators for your software projects. We integrate with GitHub and make it easy for you to collaborate with others on your open source projects and find people to work with who have shared interests so that you can actually build software with other people rather than building your software by yourself. Find Collabs is not only for open source software, it's also a great place to collaborate with other people on low code or no code projects, or find a side project if you're a product manager or somebody who doesn't like to write code. Check it out at findcollabs.com. Haseeb, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? Today, we're talking about crypto startups. Oh, good. Crossing Wonderful. two of my favorite topics. I was worried we might talk about that. So, we went through this 2018 bubble of... 2017. It was 20, well, 2017, 20, well, yeah, early 2018. 2018 was the bubble. The crypto bubble yeah. of things which resembled startups in some way. Yes. Kind of were startups were more like poor excuses for startups. The common lesson from 2018 was that none of this crypto stuff works at all, except Bitcoin. Maybe we should all be Bitcoin maximalists. <laughs> do we need crypto companies at all? Yes, we definitely do. I think it's tempting to sort of paint all of 2017, 2018 as one giant bust. But the reality is that we, you know, a lot of things that that came of age in 2017, 2018, we now have as important piece of infrastructure. So obviously Ethereum kind of came of age in the ICO bubble. But of course, there are, there are a lot of companies in crypto that are not tokens. And those companies are important infrastructure. So things like exchanges, trading, lending, custody, those types of businesses, they again also came of age during the ICO bubble. So there are traditional looking equity businesses that that did get created during that time. But most of the companies and most of the capital formation that happened then was kind of this weird bubbly blip. And most of those companies made no fundamental sense. And so it's kind of like all bubbles 
where, you know, Carlotta Perez writes about this in her famous book on, I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's, you know, financial capital and financial revolutions. The hard thing about hard things. That's right. The hard, hard thing about hard things. <laughs> and essentially what she says is that in any technological revolution, there is always first a speculation period, then a collapse, and then a deployment phase. And the speculation and the collapse, like the crazy bubble mania that happens, is essential for installing that technology and putting an infrastructure that is otherwise very difficult to actually coordinate its installation. So, you know, the famous story about the internet of like, okay, yes, during the dot-com bubble, there were all these completely irrelevant businesses that made no sense, that were totally overcapitalized, that were burning money without a real business plan. But at the end of the day, it did lead to one, an enormous amount of consumer education about what internet companies were. It led to enormous build out of, of mobile networks that were necessary to, to get the United States and other countries connected through internet infrastructure. And that infrastructure paid dividends down the road of letting us adopt the internet faster than we otherwise would. And I think you're seeing something similar in crypto is that if there was never an ICO bubble, there probably would not have been the level of understanding and engagement that you saw from the entire world in what is crypto? What is blockchain? What do we need to pay attention to? Why is it important? There certainly would not have been the Libra, which may now be that that uh, that first you know beachhead of crypto becoming really mainstream the libra would not have happened were it not for the ico bubble so it's a little bit too early to call how much of this is just completely wasted energy and how much of it is real installation work but i think it is important not to paint the entire thing as having been a just kind of you know tulip mania now that you're investing in crypto startups as well as crypto protocols. Describe some of the promising domains that you expect to emerge as viable businesses within the crypto startup world. That's a, that's a tough question. It's intrinsically tough because crypto is such a nascent technology that it just moves so fast that I'm loath to give a really tight rubric of what I think are the businesses that will exist. Most of my job as an investor is not to predict the future. It's to understand the present. And that is hard enough. You know, like in a space that moves as rapidly as this, most of what's hard about investing is changing your mind in real time and listening to when the world is telling you, hey, your ideas about how this was going to go, they're wrong now. And you need to update your model of the world, you know. So with that caveat in mind, I think a few of the big categories, I think, in crypto that really accrue value and make for interesting businesses. So one of them obviously is what we call layer ones. So layer ones are fundamental cryptocurrency public blockchains, right? So this would be like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, Algorand, you know, everything you see on EOS, Tron, all that stuff, that goes in the bucket of layer ones. These are fundamental cryptocurrencies that enable some kind of ecosystem or computational system or smart contract system on top of them. The second category, which I think will probably grow in importance over the next couple of years is what we call layer twos. So layer twos are systems that are built on top of these layer ones, but are not themselves money or the originators of the security of, of, of the network. So examples of this would be the Lightning Network, Plasma. There are a number of other models that are becoming increasingly interesting to people, such as what are called zero-knowledge roll-ups. There are other variations as well that people are experimenting with. There's a lot of stuff going on here that has been in the works for the last couple of years as a way of scaling these blockchains without actually changing the underlying layer one which is really interesting, right? It's, it's sort of like you have IP 
and the IP protocol is not going to change, but you can sort of upgrade TCP to Quick, which actually has better performance than TCP in a lot of places. And there are ways in which you can... Wait, Quick is the UDP thing, right? I don't remember. Whichever one it is. The point is the same, that you can take the same underlying infrastructure and improve the protocols on top of it. I mean, take HTTP2 as a good example, right? Just simple things like you know, multiplexing requests allows you to suddenly get a huge increase in throughput given the same underlying networking stack, right? The same thing sort of applies to blockchains. So that's another area of active research. The tough things with layer ones and layer twos is that you know, people have been aware that this is a problem for such a long time, that there are so many projects in flight trying to solve this problem that any new startup coming down the road, like in 2019, you're just going to be at a really big disadvantage in you know, distribution and getting to market in time. So that's on the kind of fundamental core tech side. Then there's the application side, right? And the application side is kind of, there are kind of two different routes you can go. So one is the on-chain economy. And then the second one is sort of the off-chain kind of higher level financial stack, right? The financialization of crypto. So that's the obvious businesses that everybody's aware of, like Coinbase, like Circle, like Gemini, like Kraken. These are exchanges, lending businesses, custody, the kind of infrastructure that you need to have a financial market built on top of crypto, which is you know a lot of the biggest businesses that we see right now that are traditional businesses, they're almost all the financialization of crypto. But then there's the on-chain ecosystem, right? So this is like, what is the economy that's developing on top of Ethereum or on top of EOS, where everything lives in the blockchain ecosystem? So here we're starting to see an emerging ecosystem of, the, the most interesting of which is probably what's called DeFi or decentralized finance. And decentralized finance is the idea that you can basically have alternatives to these centralized you know, financial businesses like Coinbase or lending businesses and whatnot, you can have them entirely on a decentralized system. So for example, you can have an exchange that entirely lives on a blockchain. So there's no business, there's no central operator who needs to run that business. It's all coded up in smart contracts and it, it serves its customers through the blockchain itself. And you can do the same thing with lending. You can do the same thing with, uh, uh, you know, swaps, with all sorts of, uh, you know, derivatives, all sorts of tokenized financial products that, that live intra-blockchain. So that's a new developing ecosystem that, that we are really interested in and that's growing really rapidly in crypto. So that, I think, is a reasonably good taxonomy of what's going on in the space. But of course, there's a lot else that I'm not talking about, like tokenization, gaming, lots of uh, on-chain to off-chain things that people are experimenting with. So it's a big space, but I think those are the biggest categories. Now you seem pretty non-dogmatic in terms of which of these things will or won't work out like i've looked at the layer two layer one stuff for a long time and it's it's funny because you know the layer one people will be so convinced that it's all going to be layer one the layer two people will be so convinced it's going to be layer two but it's so unclear and they're obviously just aligned with where their incentives lie i mean to some extent i guess they're just making arguments for why it should be layer two which happens to align with their incentives but is there anything you're dogmatic about in the space? <laughs> I'm sure many people would say I'm dogmatic about a lot of things. I try very actively to stay open and to let my mind be changed when the facts change. I think it's funny. I'd say that crypto Twitter rewards dogmatism, yeah. but investing does not reward dogmatism. Investing but rewards But does investing reward activity in crypto Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> that remains to be seen. It's a little bit too early to say. And I also suspect that the crypto investing world is also changing now. It's growing up quite a lot. 
you know so where before it was kind of a it was sort of an old boys club of like there's a small number of people who are actually active in crypto investing and if you want to raise money it was from one of these you know small number of people now you know there are so many funds in the world that are chasing crypto deals that it's there's there's a lot of dumb money in the space which also means that you know now you now you've got you know world class funds like Andreessen Horowitz and Paradigm which is sort of an outgrowth of Sequoia uh, they you you have really top tier funds with really serious talent who are working in the space obviously i think my fund is is in that category and that just makes it that it's much more about being less dogmatic and being more open to seeing the world as it is and understanding the world more clearly and not taking sides in any of these ideological debates crypto is very much driven by ideology right it is very it's very intrinsically religious and it's hard and somewhat unrewarding to be a anthropologist at a time when everybody's taking sides and getting ready to do holy war. So, that part of it is tough. There there are times when I'm envious of people who do enterprise SaaS investing because it is like there's not much emotions don't run high in the enterprise SaaS investing world, but they do very much in crypto. There are, you know, I a lot don't of people, know, man, you get into time series databases. Uh, like, maybe, a maybe, lot of time maybe I don't know. Databases. Yeah, exactly. Maybe everything looks like that from the inside, but, There's a uh, lot of service meshes. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, maybe I just don't know. Grass is greener. The DeFi stuff, decentralized finance, the idea of a decentralized coin base, you and I were talking yesterday about coordination problems and how crypto only solves a very specific kind of coordination problem. And many of the imaginative crypto startups, Bloomberg for crypto, for example, I mean, maybe they will work, but supply chain for crypto, we could... We could maybe squint and find an incentive alignment problem that you can solve with crypto or crypto in, in its uh, currently conceivable form. But many of them are, are, you have to, man, you really have to squint. You have to like squint and speculate and roll dice and stuff. So why is decentralized finance at all appetizing to you? So let me start answering that question by mirroring your sentiment is that I totally agree. And I think a lot of these companies, these sort of fast follower startups that that came about after the ICO bubble and seem to still, still persist as sort of, you know, bad ideas that keep floating around the collective unconscious that people keep keep trying to build. You know, it's sort of like blockchain for X, where there was like Uber for X and there was, you know, Facebook for X. There's a lot of blockchain for X. And the problem with most of these blockchain for X startups is that essentially the idea is we should get everybody on a shared database right? That's the startup idea. Let's get everyone on a shared database. I agree. That's awesome if we could get everybody on a shared database, but getting everybody on a shared database startups are hard, not because of the technology. They're hard because of the coordination problem. So let's say, great, now you have a blockchain. You still have the problem of getting everybody on that shared database. And that's hard. And it's not hard because they didn't have blockchains yet. It's hard because it's hard to get people who coordinate who fundamentally don't want to, or for whom it's fundamentally hard to get a bunch of people, round them all up and get them to use the same technology. So I think uh, these startups so far, like almost none of them have succeeded. So that naturally might make you ask the question of like, okay, well, how is, why is DeFi any different? What's, what's so interesting about decentralized finance? Isn't that basically the same thing, just finance, but plus blockchain? And I think the answer is there's a very, very resounding difference between those two ideas. So blockchains were first invented by Satoshi Nakamoto to solve one particular problem. And that problem was, how can you create decentralized money? And so far, I mean, a lot of people, myself included, looked at that and thought, wow, that's amazing. I bet there are a lot of other coordination problems you could solve using a blockchain. And so far, it doesn't really seem like that's true. 
so far it seems like the, the primary new thing that we can do thanks to blockchains is create decentralized money and otherwise decentralized and programmable money platforms. That is genuinely new. And the outgrowths of that, of basically allowing global permissionless innovation on top of money, that has never been possible before. So what does that mean? What does that entail downstream? It means, for example, that you know, right now, if you look at DeFi, a lot of what's interesting in DeFi is like basically ETH heads, people who are early investors into Ethereum, who own a bunch of it and play around with all these dApps that are kind of shitty to use for everybody else. They want to, you know, go long on their ether. They want to take out, you know, they want to lend it out. They want to do something weird that most normal people don't really care about, right? And that's a lot of what DeFi activity is today. You might think, who cares? Well, the, the terminus of DeFi is ultimately the idea of totally democratizing financial markets, right? It's basically saying that, you know, using DeFi, you can create any kind of synthetic asset that you want. You can create a stable coin, which is synthetically backed to the US dollar. You can create an asset that's pegged to the price of gold, to the price of the S&P 500, like UMA protocol is doing. Um, you can create any financial asset you want. Ultimately, a financial asset is just a price feed, right? It's a price feed plus some kind of stability mechanism. We have those. We have both of those. So with that, you can essentially build a financial system that anybody in the world can use just by having an internet connection. That's big. Imagine an old lady in India, okay? So my parents are from Pakistan, India, kind of very similar culture. Everybody there, they don't really trust rupees, okay? They're, I mean, their government is fairly nascent, you know, it's, it wasn't that long, and so they broke the, the grasp of colonialism, very volatile, lots of capital controls, and basically every family will hoard onto their inheritance in gold. Gold is the thing that they trust. It's just generation after generation, everybody trusts gold more than they trust anything else. And, but imagine those old ladies who are hoarding all this gold, if they had access to financial markets outside of India, do you not think that they would just buy U.S. bonds or hold U.S. dollars or a diversified asset, a diversified set of currencies and stocks and bonds? Like, why would they not want the same portfolio that you want? Of course they do. They just don't have access to it, right? The idea of DeFi is that it uses crypto, it uses the decentralized censorship-resistant networks to create access to financial markets anywhere in the world in a way that anybody can build on them, anybody can do whatever they want, and ultimately the beneficiaries of that are people who don't currently have access to them. So the instinct that a lot of people in the first world have is to look at this stuff and say like, okay, well, why do I care about this? I'm not gonna pay somebody using DAI or using Ether or whatever, which is completely correct. That is 100% right. People in the first world have such good access to financial markets and to financial services that nothing crypto can offer them is anywhere near as good as what they already have. But that is very untrue the farther you get away from the first world. And, a, and obviously the vast majority of people do not live in the United States or in Western Europe. So that, to my mind, is the best kind of intuitive sort of squint that you can take at the DeFi market and understand why. Look, today it's small. Today it's a burgeoning, weird little place with a lot of, a lot of crazy crypto anarchists. But it's going to be big. And I'll tell you what's cool about this is when I look at... DeFi, and I compare it to the self-driving car, man, I see less execution risk in DeFi. <laughs> you know, like maybe it'll take longer sure. for various reasons. There's a lot of regulatory risk, but execution risk is lower, I would agree. But it looks impossible in the limit to regulate. Like to me, I don't know. I don't know about you. 
I agree. I think, I think, you know, regulation right now today, right? All of these things are kind of, they're kind of toys. And if the U.S. government really wanted to shut everything down tomorrow, they could get pretty close. They know the principles involved. They can find them. There's not that many people willing to go to jail for DeFi yet. You're right. You're right. It absolutely might. But I think it's a matter of time when this stuff gets big enough and people, the stakes get high enough and the demand for it grows enough that I completely agree with you. It's not going away. I mean, it's going to be so interesting to watch because one of the really nice aspects of the crypto revolution, if you want to call it that, has been that it's like forced a lot of people to really examine what money is, which was one of those like weird, it's like you grow up and you're like, oh, religion. Nah, I'm not into religion. And like, I believe real things. And then you have these other things in life that sort of, you know, turn reality on its head. And one of those is like a close examination of what money is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think crypto is very alien to anybody who's basically older than 40. And anybody who's under 20, I think crypto makes complete sense. Crypto, crypto is just much more intuitive to people who are is younger. Is it the 2008 factor? I, it's a lot of things. I mean, one obvious thing is just being digitally native, right? Like the idea that money is not something printed by the government and that it's like just like a number on your cell phone. That makes complete sense. Like, you know, these people, these people have never met a banker in their lives. So the, the, their relationship with money is very, very different from, I think, those of, of people who've lived through, you know, the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, getting off of Bretton Woods, all that stuff. It's a very different perspective on what makes money money. You know what I was thinking about the other day? Like... You experienced a currency debasement firsthand with the full tilt poker stuff, right? <laughs> like full tilt poker had a bunch of money and it was sitting in their coffers and they figured, ah, you know, we're never going to run out of money. We can just borrow a little bit of this sum of money that's, you know, sitting in our coffers. And, and then it turned out that that would lead to insolvency and players were not getting paid out. And you were one of those players. Well, we uh, we did eventually get paid out, but many years later without interest. Many years later when that territory got acquired. Yes, correct. I mean, it got annexed by the next largest financial monstrosity. Yeah. Which, for all we know, is doing the same thing, but probably not. Probably, probably not. I presume not. <laughs> probably At this not. point, yeah, they probably have a tight leash around them. I agree. I mean, it's funny, though, like you, you said earlier that I'm not very dogmatic, and that's correct. Like, I, I didn't walk away from Black Friday and the poker bust with, like, deep-seated animosity against the government. I basically was like, oh, whoops, that happened. That's, that's really weird. Like, too bad I had so much money on poker sites. The funny thing is, like, so my, my partner at Metastable, the fund I was at previously, he is Russian, right? So he lived through the collapse of the USSR. And he has a very different perspective on money as a result of that. You know, a lot of people who come to crypto, they come to crypto because like they have a scar somewhere on them that they don't show very often, but that really gives them a deep seated skepticism and, and untrustingness when it comes to money and especially government backed money. I don't think I have that. I think I come to this with a much more analytical, I like, I don't have an ax to grind coming into crypto. I think that crypto is going to change the way that money works in the future. I think it's going to change the relationship between central banks and their ability to control the money supply. I think there's a lot of things that are going to change in the world as a result of crypto. But in a sense, like I'm not really even rooting for either side. I think there are good points to be made on both. 
I want to see what happens. I think this is going to be an amazing show and I just have a bunch of popcorn in front of me and like I want the best seat in the theater and options. And I also want options. That's right. Low strike price. You wrote a pretty long post about how to start a crypto startup. And one of the things that struck me about the post was how similar it was to starting a regular startup. Is there anything counterintuitive about starting a crypto startup or is it just can i read the yc manual and follow that and my crypto startup will work so it's it's fairly similar i mean the one departure from it is there are a number of elements you need to think about when starting a crypto startup that are pretty unique such as where do i allocate my tokens what jurisdiction should i build in there's a lot of stuff in crypto that is more science projecty which you know like building a protocol or building a layer 2 system or you know, token economics or crypto economics, that sort of stuff is pretty unique to crypto. It's not really a thing in most startups. Most startups, their economic models are pretty straightforward. For the most part, there are more analogies than disanalogies. Part of the reason why I wrote the post is that crypto also is much more global. And, you know, YC startup advice, while, you know, it's it's sort of old hat within San Francisco or in, in the Bay Area, much less so outside of the U.S. And you notice that immediately when you meet startup teams outside of, you know, basically California and New York, that they have not really internalized many of the lessons. And, and kind of rightly so, because their VC communities are very different. You know, if you go to a place like Berlin or Israel or places even far flung than that, the VCs do not have the same mindsets as the folks in Silicon Valley. And so the startup advice out here is just not appropriate for I mean, it's, it's still good, but it's not sort of exactly what the VCs there are expecting to invest in. So it's tricky. It's a, it's a tricky game to play. So that's why Harry Stebbings stays in England. <laughs> I can't speak for him. I don't know. What about from the investor's point of view? How does investing in crypto startups differ from being a normal investor? It differs quite a lot. I think one thing that most people who've dabbled in crypto investing, especially who dabbled in it in 2017, will tell you is that it's very easy to lose your shirt in crypto if you don't know what you're doing. And if you don't have strong convictions and understandings about what actually drives value in the crypto economy, there are so many smart entrepreneurs and great teams that are entering crypto now. And unfortunately, there are just a lot of bad ideas. And it's very difficult to value a crypto company because most of them are valued on comparables. It's like, well, that startup before you was valued at this, so therefore you should be valued around the same. They're sort of priced rather than valued because nobody knows what the valuations of these things could be because you know, for the most part, many of these crypto startups don't really have revenue. They don't really have clear monetization strategies. Like it's really, a lot of these are in the realm of basic science. And the difficulty there is that if you don't have a keen eye for what is good science and what is bad science, you're definitely gonna, gonna be led very far astray. And then also there's just a lot of intellectual tar pits I think you can fall into within crypto. So one of the things I mentioned was like these blockchain for X type things. It's very hard to, to understand why a blockchain for X doesn't work. You know, it's kind of like, I don't remember the name for this, but it's sort of like, you know, when someone gives you an argument and you kind of know, like, you know, a conspiracy theorist comes and gives you some argument for why, you know, Hillary Clinton was something, something, something. And you're like, I know that's not true, but I don't, I don't know that I don't care. I don't have the time to like, delve into why that's wrong and like, you know, where your sources are screwed up and like, like you're smart enough to have, have developed an interesting tapestry that looks fairly robust of why this weird conspiracy theory must be true. I don't have time to debunk it, you know? And that is very often true for a lot of these crypto startups that they're sort of 
they're easy to believe. It's, it's very plausible. It's hard to really know, like, is this bullshit or not? I have no idea. And a lot of times, like my default when I see that is to not invest. Because if I don't actually understand how a startup makes money and I don't truly positively believe what they're telling me about the world, then you know I can't invest. I don't want to invest in things I don't understand. Unfortunately, a lot of investors do the exact opposite, is that if they can, like if it's credible enough that they can't discredit it, then they're like, sure, why not? That sounds plausible. What if I miss the next big thing? That's really what drove a lot of 2017, obviously, was like, you know, most of the great investors in crypto invested, made very few investments in 2017. Most of the stuff that was driven up really crazy, none of the really great crypto funds were investing in any of that stuff. It was all kind of, you know, sort of dumber money farther down the stack that didn't really understand crypto that deeply that ended up really getting shafted when everything crashed. So I think a lot of it is really just being, I guess, self-aware about the limits of your knowledge. In our last conversation, well, no, the conversation before that, we talked a little bit about the fact that in crypto, you actually do not want to do the pattern of investing in a team that is really smart, that's in a great market, just even despite the fact that they have a bad idea, because that describes too many crypto people. Totally, totally. I mean, ideas matter. You know, it's this popular Silicon Valley adage. They're like, well, execution matters. Ideas are whatever. And that idea, I, I think I write this in the in the blog post. That advice is great, not because it's true, but because it's useful. In reality, we all know that ideas matter. Of course, ideas matter. And if you have a bad idea, no matter how long you grind on it, the only thing that you will walk away from is with the years of your life having been lost to that bad idea. So it, it still remains true that, you know, an early enough stage great team with great ideas, even if they, even if their idea is not sound, is worth investing in just because that team will find the great idea and the great product through iteration. But that isn't licensed to just invest in ideas that make no sense, given high quality teams and high quality products. Okay. So like great team, marginally credible idea, possible investment. It depends on the stage. Depends on the stage, depends on the valuation, and depends on how pliant that team seems to be to potentially changing their mind about that idea, you know? Blockchain for podcasts. Blockchain for podcasts. You know what, for you, anything, <laughs> anything. You know, RSS is kind of a decentralized, the way that it works is kind of, I mean, except it's all centralized around yeah, I mean, iTunes. It's just, it's just a format, you know? That's true. Well, okay, the, the way it propagates is kind of, I mean, okay, all right. All right, just leave it. Right, yeah, moving, leave on, it moving on, moving on, moving um, on. But it has a coin. It does have a coin. It does. Uh, We're starting that today. There's going to be a coin, RSS coin. Get it here. All right. So let's say I want to be working on a successful crypto startup as soon as possible. I'm in the crypto world. I'm bought in. Like, sign me up. I'm, re I'm ready. I'm on the crypto rocket ship. I don't have a good idea. Should I burrow into a cave and do research for like six months? Should I go work at Coinbase? What should I do as a crypto person with no good ideas? I would say number one thing to do is to join the biggest, baddest, coolest startup you find that really gets you excited. That is by far the best thing that you can do if you really want to delve into crypto and, and you know, get, get your chops as a, as a crypto thinker. Once you're at the point where you really understand the industry, then I think, you know, burrowing down and, and, and coming up with a bunch of ideas is totally fine. But a lot of the best ideas in crypto came from people working on other stuff. 
So crypto is full of ideation all the time. It's pretty hard to be in the space and not be around people coming up with new ideas and new theories and new approaches to doing things. So keeping an ear to the ground, but also improving your understanding of how things currently work, because you know crypto was really invented 10 years ago, you know, it's like cryptocurrencies. And almost all of the innovation in cryptocurrencies has happened outside of academia. So there's no course you can take that's really going to get you up to speed. There's no textbook. It's really just osmosis from all the stuff that currently exists and understanding how it works and why it was built the way that it's built. So you can't skip that part if you really want to be adding on to the pantheon of crypto as it currently exists. And the best way to do that is is work on something, work on something that already exists. And then the next stage, once you're coming up with ideas, you're working with co-founders, building projects, going to hackathons, that's absolutely the right way to approach if you want to just crank on startup ideas. You know? But I think if you can be at a company while doing that, all the better. Because again, the smartest people in crypto are the people working on this stuff, and those are the people you want to surround yourself with. You've been in Silicon Valley for a while, and you've commented on certain cognitive dissonances and, and things. And, and that's, you know, one thing I always find entertaining about your posts and commentary and so on. And one piece of cognitive dissonance that can really plague people sometimes is that they start companies for the wrong reasons. Why do people actually start startups? <laughs> there are certainly a lot of reasons. I think over the last 10 years, startups have become really cool which is terrible. And it's terrible because there are a lot of people who now see starting a startup as like kind of a rite of passage or sort of like another notch to get on their belt. It's kind of like it's kind of like being a Fulbright scholar or whatever, is like being a startup founder, even if the startup fails. And unfortunately, we as investors kind of feed into that because we do give brownie points to people who have started a startup at some point. So I can't claim to not be a part of the system in that respect. But I, I think the this notion that like, everybody should just start a company at some point is kind of a bad notion for fairly obvious reasons is that most people like that's a really crappy reason to start a company is because like you think you should. And while it's good and we certainly should have more entrepreneurship in this world, I think having an, you know, being an entrepreneur for the sake of getting a badge of honor or looking cool or like beefing up your LinkedIn or being able to break into product management or whatever it is that is convincing people to start startups these days, I think is definitely a net is it's suboptimal. I will say a lot of people start startups to make money. A lot of people do it because they want to be cool. A lot of people do it because they think that it's going to make them happy. And most of them find out that all of those things will not happen as a result of starting a startup for the vast majority of people. The best startups are inevitably founded by people who actually want to change something in the world. Like people who see like, man, this market sucks. It's inefficient. It doesn't work. There should be a better product. And the product should look like this, this, and this, and nobody's building it, so I'm going to go fucking build it. That's what the best startups tend to look like. It tends to look like products of just like overwhelming frustration, of just like, God damn it, everybody else is an idiot, I'm going to go do this and fix this whole thing once and for all. That's what great startups tend to look like. And, you know, you point at every great company in, in most sectors. They were not built by people who are trying to look cool. They were not also built by people who just wanted to make money. People who want to make money, I mean, it used to be the case people who want to make money would just go to Wall Street. Unfortunately, now they get diverted to Silicon Valley as well. So we've got our we've got our share of them. But my take is that for the most part, I'm happy to see people working in startups, and it's pretty easy to tell when somebody's there for the wrong reasons. So in that sense, I'm not too worried about it. But people are going to be people. All right, tougher question for you. Go for it. 
before you were working on Dragonfly, yes. which very happy about you being there, and uh, I think you're going to do fantastic. You were working on a stablecoin for a while. You were thinking about stablecoin. Well, I don't yes. know if you were... I was working on a stablecoin. Working, working on one. You Correct. were working on the ideas. Were there any cognitive dissonances there? Why were you working on that? I was working on a stablecoin because, one, so at the time, the only stablecoin projects that existed were terrible. So there was BitShares, which had their BitUSD stablecoin. There was one called Basis, which I wouldn't call terrible, but I would say that I didn't think that their model was sound in the long run. And uh, there, was, there was a team called MakerDAO, which had not, at the time that we started working on this, had not actually launched anything yet, even though they had raised an ICO many years earlier, and they kind of were working on something for like three plus years, and they'd not shipped anything. And so we just thought like, why isn't there just a friggin' stablecoin that's actually decentralized? And so me and my co-founder came up with a design for a stablecoin that we thought would be good. And that, that's kind of where it came from. It was, it was just really like, we were, we were looking at, you know, different things that we could build. Um, and honestly, part of it, to be quite honest, was that like, I realized I don't like working in big companies and startups are, I, I think I'm somebody who's abnormally well-suited to startups just because like I work much better in chaos than I do in highly ordered situations. So, you know, I thought, Hey, crypto is a space where like, there's so many things to build and not that much exists yet. And I think it really should. And DeFi in particular was something that I always found really exciting and at the same time, I was really frustrated that nobody was shipping. Nobody was actually just building stuff. Now, I'm happy to say that that has really been ameliorated over the last couple of years. Since 2017, you know, basically around December of 2017, MakerDAO launched Psy, which then got rebranded to DAI, which is now the currently largest decentralized stablecoin. Uh, stablecoins in general have really, really grown in the last couple of years. So the ecosystem's gotten a lot better. But that, you know, that moment in time was definitely a moment where I was like very annoyed at the state of how crappy everything in crypto was. You know, I remember talking to you about this. Like my first instinct when I saw crypto entrepreneurs was like, wow, these people are mostly terrible. <laughs> like they're mostly like really terrible. And like the field, there's like this huge arbitrage of just as a smart person. You know, it was, it was, it was crypto, hard. For, don't be a weird person. It was hard for me because I would interview these Ethereum people about the, as you called it, the double backflip of, of trying to get sharding. Right. And I was like, man, I feel so dumb talking to these people. Like yeah, they're yeah. so, they got these brilliant sharding solutions and it's like distributed systems on steroids mixed with microeconomics. And, I just don't understand it. I, totally. I mean, they're all smarter than me. Well, the reality is most of the people who've been building blockchain for a long time are astronauts. You know, they're like these cypherpunk, pie in the sky, like Galilean type figures, which is great. And you need those people, but they are not go to market people. They're tilting they are windmills. Not, yeah, exactly. They're not, they're not startup people. And, you know, much of what we've seen in the last couple of years is really as a result of the ICO bubble, we've seen a massive influx of high quality entrepreneurs. And that also accounts for part of the reason why I started in working on a company and transitioned into investing was because I saw, oh, that arbitrage in large part got filled. Like good entrepreneurs did come into the space and they did start building companies. And now the products are way better than they were two years ago. You know, and so, I, you know, I, I think I'm somebody who probably will eventually end up going back into entrepreneurship at some point, but really only when I have an idea that I'm highly convicted about and that I really feel like, oh, this thing is awesome and it should exist. And I think it's a great idea. Uh, now, for me, that bar is higher. You know, it's not just like, oh, hey, Bloomberg for crypto, that should be a thing. But right now, I see a bunch of great entrepreneurs in crypto, and I'm happy to see them there grinding on stuff. MakerDAO is cool. MakerDAO is very cool. 
I did a show on that. And that was interesting because that was a company where at first I was like, oh, wow, this is this is just as confusing as the sharding double backflip. But the difference was after beating my head against it for enough time, I, I kind of got it. I think I still don't completely get it, yeah. but like the, the economic system intuitively felt like it made more sense to me. Yeah. But the line, I mean, the line is so hard to draw sometimes. Like there are these, are there any um, like protocols, like MakerDAO, you know, the, the people seem really smart, the ideas make sense, and it has gone to market successfully. Are there any more like shaky, dubious cases where you're not exactly sure? Maybe you can't call them out. Like, you know, the, the- <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't want to I don't want to make any particular call outs. But yes, the answer is yes. Things that are like on the border between. I mean, I'm trying to put this into the form of a question, but yeah, I mean, you're familiar with Tether, right? Right, Tether. Okay. Yeah, so Tether Tether is the world's largest stablecoin, right? They've got over, I think, $4 billion of, of outstanding Tethers issued. The whole idea behind Tether, it's Tether's very still simple. Tether's still going. Oh, yeah, it's grown. It's, it's grown more than probably any other DeFi product. So if you want to call it DeFi. So, so Tether, for those who are not familiar, Tether is literally, here's how Tether works, okay? Somebody sets up a bank account, originally in Puerto Rico, now somewhere else, apparently. And basically, they put dollars in that bank account, and then they issue Tethers. And anybody can trade tethers. And when they send tethers back to the tether company, they say, okay, great. We're going to destroy these tethers and give you back the dollars. So it's essentially just like, you know, some company's balance sheet tokenized that's freely tradable. So there have been tons of scandals around tether over the last couple of years where one, like tether lost their their banking relationship at some point and had to like go shopping around for a new one. And that kind of crashed the price of tether for a little while. And then they were sued by the New York attorney general's office for basically Bitfinex, which is the exchange that kind of shadily is connected to tether. They have like the same directors. They like gave a loan to tethers in exchange for something which under collateralized the money that was supposed to be held by the Tether Corporation. Sorry, the loan went from Tether to Bitfinex. A lot of craziness. And despite that, it is the most trusted stablecoin in Asia by far. In Asia, people treat Tether as cash. They basically see it as the most trustworthy asset to have on hand. And in the US, I mean, the New York Times did this huge hit piece against Tether back in 2017. And pretty much everybody in the US, you know, you, you sort of can't be caught dead holding Tether in the US which kind of just shows you the very, very big gulf between what's going on in the East and West with respect to crypto is, you know, this, this is sort of a wider conversation, but one, you know, most of the capital in crypto, most of the money that actually is chasing these assets, Bitcoin, Ether, all this stuff, it's not coming from the US. US is like maybe 20% of all volume. Uh, most of it comes from Asia. And that makes sense when you realize that you know, Asia has very tight capital controls all around the world. They have much more demand for US-denominated financial assets. And they, you know, like us, have stagnating growth and they have a lot of capital chasing not that many good deals. So there's a very big macro picture that also plays into what's going on in crypto that is hard to disentangle from the technology. So Tether, despite being probably one of the shadiest companies in crypto, is the largest stablecoin by far. And it really shows no sign of being toppled anytime soon. So at one point, I was very certain that Tether was going to collapse and that it was going to be replaced by something better. And I am no longer convinced of that. I think now it's, it's more likely that Tether is going to rule the roost for a while until there is a slow, probably unceremonious transition. But for the, for the time being, Tether is here to stay. There are more things in this world than in your mind philosophy. Right. You've spent some time in china recently right i have yeah 
you have any perspective for how crypto is changing China or how China is changing crypto? <laughs> Uh, definitely more China changing crypto because China is is just a powerhouse relative to crypto. I mean, in the eyes of any country, crypto is pretty tiny, except maybe Korea. I would say that the most interesting news that's come out of China over the last half year is that China is issuing a central bank digital currency, which is sort of their response to the Libra, which is Facebook's new digital currency. And a lot of people are really excited about this. A lot of people think this is bullshit. It's kind of hard to tell what's real and what's not, because we know for sure this is happening. I suspect that this is likely China's way of trying to address the very, very loud clamors for blockchain and cryptocurrency to become an important part of, of Chinese technology strategy. Loud clamors. Yes. Like there, there's something like the space race going on right now between the US and China. And I feel like it's more on the Chinese side than it is on the US side. But China is like, AI cri is the big thing. Uh, okay, right. Right, AI is the foremost thing that, you know, China is like, look, we have to make advances in AI. We have to, we have to show that we're real serious about investment here. And they've done quite a lot of catch-up work in the, in the realm of AI. Blockchain is kind of their second thing. They're looking at blockchain as, we don't want to fall behind in what might be a very important pivotal technology. And of course, they have no idea what they're talking about. Like, they don't really understand what that means because they think that means, you know, corporate blockchains and it means, you know, something about a central bank. You're talking currency. about the Chinese government. The Chinese government. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so, that's a step ahead of the U.S. government, right? Oh, or? by far, by far. Yes. The, I mean, the U.S. government basically doesn't care. What about U.S. intelligence agencies? So we know that the U.S. intelligence agencies have done a lot of work to try to de-anonymize crypto networks and to try to track what's going on on a lot of these networks. So, I mean, you know, knowing what we know about, you know, like the NSA's capabilities post-Snowden, we should not be surprised to know that they're basically tracking all the Bitcoin flows everywhere in the network and they're running spy nodes and doing all this sort of stuff because, you know, why wouldn't they? That's basically all they do. That said, the U.S. government itself is mostly, I mean, you've, if you saw those, uh, the hearings that they did with the, with the Libra when David Marcus went to Capitol Hill, mostly they're interested in blocking the Libra. They don't really want this to happen. Right. They're they don't very... want Facebook to innovate on its subscription business. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's the exact opposite thing they called for when Rob Zuckerberg came to testify. I, I think the U.S. government is facing a very different set of trade-offs than China is. Like, the U.S. government is not trying to compete with China. They know that they're already ahead. You know, so they're not concerned about... And that being said, I do want to give the government their due. They have been relatively open-minded on blockchain regulation and compliance and innovation, they're not shuttering it, which they very much could. And some countries have. So if you look at like France or Japan, there are places where certain cryptocurrencies have been banned outright by the government. That's not happening in the US. So that's good. But regulations here moves very slowly. It's, it's very hard to get people to, you know, create a regulatory framework or sandbox where people can safely innovate in. And that's driving a lot of the innovation outside of the US. So if the US is okay with that trade off, which it seems to be, then okay, that's how it is. But China wants to sit on a very different side of that trade-off. So when you're talking about the, the space race, crypto space race in China's eyes, like what kind of investments are they making? Are they making any kind of investment? I mean, so, is, you know, most it's of just the, the digital, digital currency that's an alternative to the Libra, like not really anything interesting. Basically, I would say not really anything interesting. So, the, I mean, the Chinese government is basically... So there's a, there's a phrase in crypto, which is blockchain, not Bitcoin, which is a phrase uh, that like yes. everybody who's deep in crypto uh, knows yes. that phrase very well. Did we get well. over that phrase? Oh, no, no, no. It's still very much alive. Oh, my God. So basically, China is 
blockchain, not Bitcoin. Ah, uh, yes. That's, that's, the, uh, that's yes. their space race, okay. right? That's what they think is going on. And of course, like most of the really sophisticated investors realize, no, 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 no. Bitcoin is like, that's the thing that you need to be paying attention to. You know, Bitcoin, everything going on on, on these permissionless global platforms, that's what you should be afraid of. You know, that's where the real space race, where the real place where power is going to move and be, be exchanged between governments and, and uh, these networks, that's where that's going to happen. So I think for the most part, these big investments into what are essentially enterprise blockchains or just like, you know, changing the infrastructure of the central bank to be a blockchain instead of a whatever other kind of database it is. To me, that that is completely immaterial. You know, that's just that's just marketing, essentially. But, you know, China is investing a lot into that for better or for worse. And they are partnering with a lot of the largest uh, companies and institutions within China to be direct recipients of access to their central bank digital currency. So I suspect that if nothing else, that is going to galvanize other central banks to follow suit if China does that and does it successfully. So that has a lot of knock-on effects for monetary policy and for you know traditional payments and how that's going to change over time. Um, the influence that's going to have on crypto, qua crypto, is pretty minor. You know, it might mean that okay, now maybe we can tokenize yuan using the central bank digital currency to like do a cross chain swap, and now you know that's like not really anything to write home about. So I'd say for the most part, unless these central bank digital currency ledgers actually enable smart contracts, which I suspect most of them won't, that's not really in the plans. I think they basically just fundamentally don't understand what is the value proposition of these new blockchain networks. Coming back to your article, what we were talking about before the podcast is that we really don't know a whole lot about how to take a crypto startup to market. I mean, we have some historical examples like Coinbase or I guess MakerDAO or I guess Ethereum or the CryptoKitties company. And then I heard Fort on uh, on the A16Z show yesterday, A16Z podcast. And so, yeah, do, do we know anything about how to go to market as a crypto company? The answer is no, not really. Basically, we know we have a lot of examples of what doesn't work. And we have a few examples kind of of what does work, but they're not particularly replicable. Right. So the exception to that is in, so you mentioned Coinbase. Coinbase is very replicable, right? Like there literally are Coinbases in different parts of the world that run the same business, right? They're, they're, they're exchanges or their wallets. Those types of picks and shovels type services, we understand pretty well how to run. You know, we, we know what the playbook is for a lot of these. And then of course there are things like lending and derivatives exchanges for which, you know, if you look at retail Forex uh, exchanges, right? Like that is a good playbook for what it looks like to do a lot of these you know, uh, retail, you know, uh, speculator focused companies that, that are offering financial services for the real deep crypto stuff. The answer is that we don't know. We're sort of making it up as we go. And the reality is that the terrain is changing so rapidly that if you copy Ethereum, you're, you're making a mis- fundamental mistake, right? The crypto market, the people in the space, the average consumer you'll be dealing with is different. They have different beliefs. They have different understandings of, of how to use technology. They have different products available to them. Everything is changing too rapidly for us to have a really congealed playbook. So the answer is that there are bits and pieces you should pull from each of them. But for the most part, it's kind of up to you and your business to figure out how exactly you need to go to market. Give me a pulse check on the Bitcoin and the Ethereum communities. Everybody's still alive. So they're all, they're all doing well. Uh, they still hate each other for the most part. Bitcoin, I think 
This probably betrays my allegiances is not really a hardcore Bitcoiner, but I'd say for the most part, Bitcoin is just still Bitcoin. Not a whole lot has changed. Like there's always a few technological innovations in the pipeline, like Mast, like Dandelion. And Lightning like Network is there. Just Lightning people don't exists. really use it. Yeah, it's, it's small. It's tiny. I mean, people will tell you like, well, but they haven't increased the debt in the ceiling or whatever. The reality is that like there's not a ton of demand for using Lightning yet. And I sort of suspect that that's not likely to change in a dramatic way, even if they you know, onboard more people because the reality is just, it's just not, it, it's not a great yield producing people thing to put cool money into. People are cool with Venmo right now. I mean, yeah, people, people here are cool with Venmo and people don't really want to pay each other in Bitcoin. Like that's just not the way that they think about paying people. So I think, you know, we're... And in Buenos Aires, why, why wouldn't they use the Lightning Network to transfer money to each other? They might. They might also use DAI. They might also use US dollars. They might also use other currencies. Like the reality is that there are a lot of alternatives in most of these circumstances. Bitcoin is not the only game in town. And they might just use local Bitcoins. You know, maybe they don't even need Lightning. So the reality is there, there are many ways to engage in trade. And it's like we got the, the systems for the throughput and the, the demand for the throughput is not there. The other thing is that it's non-trivial to get set up on Lightning. You have to, you know, first create a channel and open it up and get liquidity to your thing. And, you know, the software is not fully baked yet. So there, there are some barriers that, that probably will get easier over time. But the reality is like, it's, you know, it's not as straightforward as just like having a phone number and then having somebody send you money, you know, which is, which is what it's like for a lot of more traditional fintech companies that are starting to compete in the same category. So that's Bitcoin land. In Ethereum land, I think there's a lot of excitement around Ethereum 2.0, which is going to be the new version of Ethereum, which is much more scalable. It's sharded. It's all the stuff you talked about, all the stuff you need a PhD to understand. That stuff is coming down the pipeline. But the reality is everybody who's honest will tell you it's really two years plus away. There's going to be like V0, which is not functional, which doesn't have smart contracts and basically is not what was promised on the tin, right? And they're doing a sort of iterative rollout where it's like, okay, first we're just going to have a network that is consensus. And then we're going to have a network where you can send people money, but there's no contracts. And then you can put data on it. And then finally you will actually have full smart contracts. And then it'll be the thing that you thought you wanted in, in the first place. And that is probably two plus years away. So that means that there's also a window for a lot of other competitors who are much more scalable smart contract platforms that are planning to launch within the next year or two. So there's things like Telegram. Telegram has a, for those who are not familiar, Telegram is like a really big end-to-end encrypted, well, supposedly end-to-end encrypted messaging network. So it's kind of like Facebook Messenger. It's got like 250 million users or something like that. They're launching Telegram coin called, their network's called Ton. And that will probably be launching sometime within the next few months, is my understanding. And then we've got the Libra supposedly launching next year, but that seems optimistic. I doubt that's going to happen. A lot of other mega launches that are similar competitors to Ethereum. So kind of what that means is that there's a lot of innovation going on in Ethereum, but there are these marauders coming over the hill and they're wheeling their cannons behind them. And we'll see whether Ethereum can hold down the fort. So I made that comment about execution risk in the self-driving car and so on. Worries about execution risk on the Ethereum front? Like, Do we have any reason to be concerned that smart contracts may be much harder to do than we think? Uh, <laughs> I think we already know that smart contracts are harder to do than <laughs> okay, we think. All right. Like the reality is all this stuff is messy. Like, yeah. you know, everything is a hack on top of a yeah. hack. And like, that's how it's going to be. And that's how the internet is. That's how the internet is. Like the internet was, you know, we're slowly, slowly taking all the thorns and splinters that we shoved in there in the first place out one by one. You know, you, like, did you see this thing? Um, what is it? Uh, Simjacker? Simjacking? 
Did you see this? I mean, of just the idea that you're sim. What do you, what do you, and I don't. So, what is, so there, there was this attack that was uncovered recently, where basically attackers can send specially formed SMS messages to your phone okay. that will actually run code on your SIM card. Because it turns out your SIM card, guess what, is a computer and can run arbitrary code and can call out to custom domains. And it turns out that people can basically take over your phone and have it perform arbitrary commands through this attack. And so it's like, you know, it was believed that basically this attack was like, you know, there was, there was some suite of software that was almost certainly created by nation states to target individuals for this type of attack, right? And that's like potentially, you know, a large swath of phones that are vulnerable to this because they use SIM cards. That's all software. That's everything, you know? I don't think blockchains are an exception to that and smart contracts, certainly not. So the most that we can expect out of these things is that they're going to keep getting better quickly, you know? Like what we want to see out of blockchains is not their great perfect systems that never break and kind of, you know, are perfectly decentralized and perfectly functional all the time and great. That's a great aspiration to have, but we're not going to hit it. And it's important to realize that. What we want is just to keep growing and keep getting better and to have that Moore's Law-like trajectory that the the internet had. That is what's going to make crypto into a sustainable innovation. If we hit a wall and we're just like, oh shit, this is basically as much as we can do. That's what worries me more than that ETH2 is going to be bungled when it finally comes to market. Of course it's going to be bungled. I mean, it's hard. It's crazy. It's rocket science. What would we hit a wall with? So I think it's possible that we might hit a wall with just like fundamental constraints on consensus and replication. So it may well be that the idea of sending all these peer-to-peer messages and everybody agreeing on the state, like there's fundamental physical limitations on how much compute you can get through a system like that. And if that's true, you know, maybe we top out at something like a thousand transactions per second or 10,000 transactions per second. And if you want to go past that and really onboard more commerce onto crypto, it's just basically impossible. Part of the dream of layer two is that that can be circumvented through these other mechanics, but they're really high friction. They're really hard to make systems that paper over those those uh, boundaries. And it might just be that like the best UX you can get in crypto is shitty. And if that's true, if we can never get a good UX in crypto, that worries me. Let's close off with some startup advice. You've been in the Valley for a while. There is this dispute in the world of startups over the extent to which a startup idea should be predetermined. The extent to which you should say, this is my mission, we're building a rocket to Mars to make human beings sustainable versus a, a pivot-heavy strategy or a, or a pivot-neutral, pivot-open strategy. Do you have any general advice when it comes to being strongly deterministic when it comes to your startup idea? So I'm pretty open to the idea that being pivot friendly is a good idea early on. Ultimately, like you're not going to know whether a startup idea is good before the world tells you something about it. And you're certainly not going to learn what the difference between a good idea and a bad idea or whether or not you can achieve product market fit just, you know, sitting in your bedroom and whiteboarding, right? At the end of the day, it is through your interactions with potential customers slash users slash whatever that you are going to figure out, is this an idea that has legs or not? I mean, ideally, the, very, the dream is that you already know who your first customer is before you even start working on a startup, right? Those are the juiciest startups to be, to be building when you are just certain, like, look, we just have to build this and we're definitely going to get customers. But if you're not in that situation, a lot of building a startup, I think, is, is more about listening, to what the world is telling you and to what your customers are telling you than it is about you declaring what your idea is and what you're going to do. So 
I think in general, entrepreneurs would be better served by lessening their conviction in a particular idea so much as having conviction in exploring an idea, which I think is different. Haseeb Qureshi, thanks for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me as always. Mm-hmm.